Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John chapter 1, go down to verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Lord, you are that light, and I pray you would shine that light into every heart this morning and let your Holy Spirit do his work through your scripture. And I pray that we would leave this place, Lord, that we would be different from the way that we walked in, that you would do a a transformative work in our lives today. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Please be seated. Welcome back to our study through the Gospel of John. We pick up our study here in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We are now introduced to John the Baptist. He's an extremely interesting and colorful character. Listen to how Mark describes him in Mark chapter 1. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So our physical description of John is he wasn't a very fancy dresser, and he seemed to have a sweet tooth. They call him a Baptist, but he sounds a whole lot more like Calvary Chapel to me. I mean, what's not endearing about a hermit who smells like a wet camel and has locust legs stuck in his teeth? Now, as you probably know, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. And the fact that John never mentioned this astounds me. 
Now add to that, the person that we are speaking of is the Son of God. If I were related to someone great, you would know about it pretty early on in every conversation that we had. Let's just say that if I were Jesus' cousin, I'd have shirts printed up so you would know it. But amazingly, John devotes his whole life pointing to the supremacy of his cousin Jesus. Now, no doubt, growing up, they got together for the holidays and just spent time together. And most Middle Eastern families are very close-knit. And the very fact that John likely knew him very well is an attestation of the character of Christ. John's name means a gift of God, which is what he has come to announce. John was content and even thrilled to be in the shadows when it came to people seeing Christ. Later on in John chapter 3, he's going to give us one of my favorite verses. But it's not John 3.16, as majestic as that is. It is John 3.30. The background of this is some of John's disciples have come to John and they say these words. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Translation. Hey, John, all the people who used to be part of your following are leaving you to follow Jesus. John's reply. A man can receive nothing unless it had been given him from heaven. You yourself are my witnesses that I said. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. And next comes the verse that I love, John 3.30. It simply says, He must increase and I must decrease. I'm told the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra is second fiddle. Not because there are not enough players to play that position, but because most people are not content with being number two. That's why you don't know the name of the producer of that CD. That's why you don't know the names of those stuntmen in the movies. That's why you don't know the names of those backup musicians in that band. People want to be seen to be noticed, and to be considered important. But John was content with being number two as long as Jesus was number one. Now John knew his role in life. He knew he had an important role, but not the most important role. I pray that all of us, starting today, begin to pray, Lord, you must become greater and make me become less. Now, John's coming was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. We find it in the last Old Testament book, the book of Malachi. Or as one preacher said, that great Italian prophet, Malachi. This is chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
This is essentially God signing off in the Old Testament. After this, there are 400 years of divine silence, and then we begin with the gospel. What's the gospel begin with, though? Is it Jesus? No. It starts with the forerunner, John the Baptist. Verse 7, please. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. As we said in Malachi, John came to be a witness for Christ. Now the word witness is a key word in the Gospel of John. John uses the noun 14 times and the verb 33 times. John the Baptist was one of many people who bore witness to Jesus proclaiming, This is the Son of God. Jesus will say that among those born of women, no one was greater than John the Baptist. Guess how that ended up for John? What's it like being the second greatest man who ever walked the earth? Surely it was a long, comfortable life of ease, comfort, and wealth. No. John ended his life living in a dungeon which culminated with his head sitting on a platter. You know, it says something about the human race that concerning the two greatest men who ever lived, one they beheaded and the other they crucified. So much for humanism, huh? Anyway, the thing with being a witness is very often people do not want to hear what you have to say. Like when John said to Herod, you shouldn't seduce your brother's wife. That's part of the reason why Herod had John's head sliced off. And if you study it, you will, you will find out that Herod's whole family was a mess. It was more or less like an ancient reality show, The Real Housewives of Herod. But like John, we are all called to be witnesses. We are not called to be attorneys. We are not called primarily to debate, argue, or convince. We are called to be just witnesses. We are called to share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God concerning what the Lord is doing in each of our individual lives. The Bible tells us in Acts 14:17 that God has not left himself without a witness. Romans 1 tells us the creation around us is a testimony of God's reality and that our conscience within us verifies his truth. Psalm 19 declares that the heavens declare the glory of God and there is no place on earth where their voice is not heard. Thus, whether a man looks up to the sky around at creation or within his own heart, he is left without excuse regarding the existence of his creator. Every man knows innately and intuitively that there is a God. I firmly believe that if there is someone in the most remote corner of the earth who is hungering and thirsting after a saving knowledge of God, God will do whatever it takes to reach that person. He may choose to speak to him through an angel, a miracle, a vision, or through us. I love the poem that says, You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. 
Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? In verse 8, John tells us that he is not the light, but instead he was sent to bear witness to that light. Now, why would John feel the need to insist that he himself was not that light? Some scholars believe he wrote those words to refute a group of people who contended that John the Baptist himself was the final revelation of God, and that in fact Christians have wrongly elevated Jesus to that status instead. Once again, I admire John for not receiving any glory to himself, but instead always directing it back to Christ. Verse 9, please. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. We are told that Jesus gives the true light that gives light to every man. By saying that, he is the true light, implicit in that fact is that there have been false lights. We are told that John the Baptist came to bear witness of the true light. Now one quality of light is that it reveals what has been hiding in the darkness. Stephen Kingsley of Craigmont, Idaho runs a carpet cleaning business in which he offers a special service for removing pet urine. To show potential customers the need for that service, he darkens the room and then he turns on a very powerful black light. Now this black light causes the urine crystals to, grow, to glow brightly. Sorry. To the horror of the homeowner, every drop and dribble can be seen. Not only on the carpet, but also on the walls, the drapes, and the furniture. One homeowner begged him to shut off the light, saying, I can't bear to see it anymore. I don't care what it costs. Please fix this. Now, the interesting thing is that problem was there all the time. But it was invisible until the right light exposed it. Now, it would have been cruel for Kingsley to show his customers the extent of their problem and then just walk away without fixing it. But instead, he brought the light so that they might desperately see and want his cleaning service. And that's exactly why Christ came. He brought the light of his presence not just to make you feel bad, but to expose the dirt so he can clean it up. And we need that, because even in the time of Christ, there were a lot of false lights that was misleading men. Part of the reason John wrote this gospel was to refute the heresy of a group called the Gnostics. That word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. More precisely, the word is used to refer to the hidden knowledge available only to the enlightened. The Gnostics believed that they were privy to spiritual experience that gave them an inside track on the religious interpretation of the world. Now, they did differ among themselves about many things. That's difficult to summarize in a few sentences what they believed. But let it be sufficient to say that God, they denied that God came in the flesh because they regarded all matter as being evil. These people taught that Jesus wasn't a man, but he was a divine spirit. And so, for example, they would say that when Jesus would walk on the beach, 
he left no footprints in the sand. Which really messes up the two sets of footprints poem, by the way. They also denied the resurrection. And though they differed regarding about how salvation was to be attained, they did agree that redemption is within our own power, and it could be achieved by encountering God directly without the mediation of Christ. These guys were the definition of a false light. And by the way, ladies, at the end of that verse, do you see that word world? It's the Greek word cosmos. And it literally means to bring order out of chaos. Do you know what word we get from that? Cosmetics. And cosmetics also means that some ladies may bring order out of chaos. But not you ladies, of course. I'm talking about women in other churches. feel like I'm treading water. Verse 10, please. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You know, I think this verse is one of the absolute saddest verses in the whole Bible. Again and again, under the Old Covenant, the prophets would describe the resistance of God's people. This is the theme that John is picking up here. For if there is one dominant theme that scriptures make, it will be the man who will be proclaimed as the Savior will be largely rejected by his own people. In fact, some have said that the words his own did not receive him could be placed over the first 12 chapters of this gospel, but over chapters 13 through 21, you could raise the banner, yet to all who would believe him, they would be, have the rights to become children of God. But can you believe it? The Creator came to his own possession, to his own home, and received no welcome. What a tragic rejection. The words could be translated, he came home and his own family rejected him. He was not a stranger. He built and owns the home. In this case, the world in which everyone resides and everything in it is his possession. And yet, he was still rejected. In the hymn, Maker of the Universe, we are given these grand expressions. His holy fingers made the bough, which grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined, in secret places he designed. He made the forest whence there sprung, the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The first time there, that Greek word translated his own is used in that verse. It's in a neuter form referring to creation. The second time, however, it is masculine referring to humanity. In other words, Jesus came into this world and all of creation acknowledged him. What that means is the winds obeyed him. The water supported him. The rocks were ready to cry out to him. But there was one segment of creation that didn't receive him, mankind. Human nature is the only part of nature 
that refuses to worship God. And so where it says that he came to his own, I think in context it refers to humanity generally, but to the Jewish nation specifically. And why did the nation of Israel reject Jesus Christ? Because they did not know him. They were spiritually ignorant. Jesus is the true light, the original of which every other light is but a poor copy. But sadly, the Jews were content with the copies. They had Moses and the law, the temple, and sacrifices. But they did not comprehend that these lights pointed to the true light, who was the fulfillment and the completion of the Old Testament religion. So what that means is when Christ took on the form of a human, he set aside his righteous God, yet he was still 100% God. So when he was tried in front of Pilate, he was still all-powerful. When he was asking questions in the temple, he was still all-knowing. And when he was present in a particular place, he was still omnipresent. It is simply that he made a choice not to take hold of what was always and always will be, his namely, godlike properties. Now, did he sometimes limit himself during his time on earth? It would seem so. How do I explain that? I can't. God has not seen fit to explain all the elements that go into what theologians call the hypostatic union which defined as the truth that Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. Like some things, such as the Trinity, we must just accept them by faith. But let me try to put it in more simpler terms. Imagine that you are visiting a hospital. You cannot find a close parking place, so you park way in the back, and now you're lost. You stop another driver in the lot to ask for directions. And he kindly says that he will just park beside you and he will walk with you to where you need to be in the hospital. Now suppose that as you get near the front of the hospital, people start greeting your guide as Dr. Jones. And you soon find out this man is actually the chief surgeon. And as you near the door, he adds, Oh yes, and this is my parking place, which you see is right by the front door. Now, he had a superior advantage because of his status. However, in deference to your needs, he did not take his rightful parking spot, but walked with you the whole way. So here's the question. As he was walking with you, did he stop being a doctor? No. Did he still have a reserved parking place? Yes. He had all these things, and at any time he could have laid hold of those things and used them. But for your sake, he chose not to at that particular moment. Now, as thin as that metaphor is, it illustrates that Christ walking among human beings did not mean that he was still not fully God then why did he not reverse the tiredness or overcome all of his physical limitations while he was on earth? I think it's because if he was, if he was to override his, his humanity, he would not have been fully in the form of a man 
and therefore cannot fully empathize with our weakness or save us by his perfect life. We have to realize the incarnation was not just an event at Bethlehem. The incarnation was the moment-by-moment choice of Christ to lay down his privileges, his rights as God, and to acquiesce to sinful man in order to purchase our salvation. Look at verse 12 with me. But as many as who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name. Praise the Lord for that word, but. How many great truths swing on that small hinge? It says, but, as many who received him. Now, receive is a gift word. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a Christmas present one morning from your husband, and it's an exercise bike. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it's a book from your daughter entitled Overcoming Selfishness and How to Stop Being a Jerk. Now, if you can honestly say to them, thank you very much, you are in a sense admitting, for indeed, I am overweight and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so, we have to admit that we have flaws and weaknesses and that we need help. Or perhaps on some occasion you had a friend who figured out that you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered you a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that has ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive that gift meant you had to lay down your pride. Now here in verse 12, it is speaking of the greatest gift of all time, the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 12 is simply saying, as many who will come to him, he will never refuse them. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all men should come to repentance. The desire of God's heart is, not, is that not one person should die without knowing him. I personally reject the ultra-Calvinistic teaching that, God's, that God has already determined that some are born to be damned. The scripture here says John was sent for a witness that all through him might believe. That word all in Greek is interesting. It means what? All. It says he will give us the right to become the children of God. Now in the Greek language you have a word for power that is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. It means, to ex- it means the ability to exercise authority because of your strength. Like, I have the power to lift this water bottle. That's dunamis or strength. But there is another word in the Greek language for that called exousia. It also means power, but it doesn't mean power because of strength, but power because of right. If you come to my house, you won't just walk in and start going through my refrigerator. Well, at least some of you probably wouldn't. But if you walk in and I say to you, help yourself to anything in the fridge, I have now given you the right or the power to eat anything out of the refrigerator that you want. Do not get too excited about that. 
We are both dieting, so most of the stuff in there is rabbit food and yogurt. Now, which word do you think that John uses here when he says that we have the right to become the children of God? Is it dunamis or is it exousia? It's exousia. God would say, any person who comes to me with an empty hand of faith, I will, because of my son, give them the right to become children of God. But verse 12 tells us the only way to receive him is to believe in his name. But what does it mean to believe? In a Rolling Stone interview a few years ago, Bill Gates, who, who at that time was the richest man in the world, was asked, Do you believe in God? Gates said that he believes science has now filled in some explanations for disease and the weather. But after admitting that science cannot explain everything, Gates shared an intriguing comment about his openness to God. He said, The mystery and the beauty of the world is overwhelmingly amazing. And there's no scientific explanation about how that came about. To say that it was generated by random numbers, that does seem, you know, sort of an uncharitable view. Gates finished by saying, I think it makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what decisions in in your life that you make differently because of that belief, I don't know. In other words, Bill Gates didn't know if believing in God should necessarily affect how you make decisions in your life. But here's the thing. If belief in God does not make a 2 Corinthians 5.17 difference in your life, you really haven't believed, at least not in the biblical sense. And what does that verse say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What is that verse telling us? There has to be a change in your life or your belief is invalid. Jonathan Whitfield was preaching to coal miners one time in England. He asked one man, what do you believe? Well, I believe the same as the church, the man said. And what does the church believe? Well, they believe the same as me. Seeing he was getting nowhere, Whitfield said, and what is it that you both believe? The man said, well, I suppose the same thing. Now, is that belief in the biblical sense? No, it's not. As we close this morning, I end with a question. What does true belief look like? Suppose you were walking down a path and you came to a bridge which crossed a deep canyon. You might look at that and believe that bridge will hold you. And you might see other people walking across that so you know that it would also hold your weight. But so far, your belief in that bridge is only in your head. When do you really believe that bridge is going to hold you? You only really believe it when you're willing to commit your life to it and actually walk across it. It is the same way with Christ. Yes, we can believe that God exists, but God requires us to come to him personally. And he has bridged that gap between us by sending his son to remove the barrier of sin and become that bridge. And only Christ can do that. 
You and I are not born integrated, unified, and whole persons. Our hearts were multi-divided. It's kind of like we had a boardroom in our heart. Imagine a big table, office chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table of your heart. There is a social self, a private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, and the religious self, among others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. Now, we can tell ourselves that we were this way because we were so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is, we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and in bondage to the committee. So that kind of person can accept Christ in one of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. So give Jesus a vote also. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way is to accept Jesus and to say to him, my life is not working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you now. I'm your responsibility. Please run my whole life for me from here on out. You see, accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It's also subtracting the idols. So he must become greater and we must become less. Father, make that true in every heart in this room, regardless of where we are with you. Become greater in us, Lord, and allow us to become less, for it is the best way to live a human life. We ask in your name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll have our communion. Ask Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up.